Thank you for that beautiful prayer, Pastor Mark. That was helpful in many ways. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter uh, 54. Uh, this is going to be about midway through your Bible, uh, the book of Isaiah. The big numbers are the chapters and the smaller numbers are the verses. Um, so we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 54 as we continue marching through this prophet, uh, prophetic book. Um, and thank Megan for your uh, talent in leading our kids when we were uh, talking about uh, doing the catechism together. She said, well, let me know what catechism you're doing each week and I'll, uh, I'll have some music planned for it. And uh, I was like, um, I don't know how you do that. Uh, how do you put a song to, is there more than one God? And the answer is no. Um, I don't know how you make a song for that. Uh, well, she does. Um, and, uh, and she picked up a ukulele, didn't even have it. She just saw it somewhere around and picked it up. Why not? So why not pick that up and learn how to play it and make s songs and then teach the kids all at the same time? Um, so it's enough to humble me. Um, so anyway, thank you though, Megan. It, it's funny because I find myself singing these songs as well. Um, but the, the true and the living one can stress you out at a stoplight. The true and the living one, true, it's, it's stressful. Stressful. I don't, I don't I recommend it. Well, Isaiah 54, in lieu of time, and because we already read the text, as our responsive reading. I'm not going to read the entire uh, chapter, so let's go to the Lord and just ask His help, and then we'll dive in. Father, we recognize that this is Your Word. It's ancient. It was written many, many years ago. It was written by people who we have so little in common with, and yet we have everything in common with. But we trust not our similarities, we trust the fact that this is a word given over by you to your people to grow us, to save us, and to change us. It tells us that Jesus Christ has paid it all. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his death. We thank you for his sacrifice. And we pray this morning that the fruit of what Jesus produced in His sacrifice would be enjoyed by Your people this morning that we would realize there is no place for our shame. There is no place for our guilt but in the grave where Jesus left it. Father, I pray if there is someone here this morning, I'm sure there is, who is not following Jesus Christ as their hope, that You would call them to Yourself. You would awaken them to their need and they will find hope, peace, security, and righteousness. We ask these things, trusting not in any person, but in Your Word. Amen. Well, every one of us has fears about the future. We don't know the future, so we're, fe we're fearful of the future. Some of us fear we will not have financial means to acquire the different things we need or, or want. Some of us are worried about our children. Will they be healthy or happy or successful? Some of us are worried about a spouse. Or will we ever have a, a child that we desire? Some worry, will we be successful in our careers? 
And none of these are trivial fears by any means. But all of these fears are second-order fears. Whether we recognize it or not, there are other things that should cause us much more anxiety than those concerns. According to a biblical worldview, according to a biblical understanding, what should cause us as fallen creatures of most concern is our relationship to a holy God. Were we to see things the way that the Bible sees them, then we would all fear for our security. We would all fear for our peace. And we would all fear for our righteousness. We would fear for our security because we are vulnerable to death. Every one of us as fallen creatures will, can, die. So Paul puts it this way, when sin entered the world, so also death entered the world. We would fear for our peace as the strongest force in the universe, namely a holy God, because of our sin, is not on our side. We would fear for our righteousness because we're not righteous. We have done wrong things and we as broken creatures, well, we are prone to do more wrong things. Oftentimes, people don't find the Bible helpful because they are wanting it to deal with their second order fears, the future of their family, their marriages, their dreams, their wealth, their goals. The Bible's not silent about those things, but the Bible is careful to rightly prioritize those fears versus the first order fears of security, peace, and righteousness. Today's text is probably one of the clearest, sweetest, grandest in all the Bible to help us recognize our first order fears and to encourage us, beg us to run to Jesus. The most interesting part of it is it was written 700 years before Jesus was born. In our last sermon, the Isaiah series, Brother Richard served us up a beautiful, helpful sermon from Isaiah 53, the chapter right before this one. And there we see that God promised one day a servant of God would come at the beckoning of the Father and offer an act of sacrifice for sinners. Here's how that chapter ended. Yet, this is Isaiah 53 verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. He poured out his soul to death, was numbered among the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Again, written 700 years 
Not after Jesus was born, or after he was born, 700 years before he was born. So the servant is crushed according to the will of his father. And in so doing, he offers a payment for guilty sinners. But he will also live again. We know that because it says he will see the result of his efforts and he'll be satisfied. So we've got one who's going to be crushed. The crushing will bring help for guilty sinners and he will later see the result of that and be satisfied. And his life will be counted as righteousness and the guilt will be removed. So our passage this morning is the very next passage right after that. If Isaiah 53 is what the servant has done, Isaiah 54 is, well, look at the results. Now, I'm by no means uh, anywhere uh, as uh, uh, experienced with superhero hero movies as Brother Richard. But I know that there's a pattern to every single one of them. There is always the penultimate, the second to last scene, where everything teeters on disaster. And the hero is battling to save the cosmos. And you're at the edge of your seat. It's dark. It's gruesome. By that time, I'm thinking, when is this thing going to be over? And then, the music changes. The mood changes. The camera pans way out. The birds are chirping. People are sipping drinks and laughing. Here you examine how different life now looks that the hero has saved the day. And you're wondering, is the, is the hero and the girl going to go off together? Or what's going to happen with that little girl we met over there? That little, you've been there. Right before the movie ends, you also try to discern, is there a sequel? Like, are we coming back, right? Richard taught me a while back to certain movies, I need to stay all the way through the credits to find out if, uh, I should, if I'll be coming back. I just Google it. It's a lot quicker. But Isaiah 53 is the dark, gruesome scene. Everything teeters. It's sick, it's nasty, it's horrific. The camera has now panned out. The music is beautiful, peaceful. This is Isaiah 54. And yet it begins with the strangest sentence. Isaiah 54 verse 1. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. This is commanding a woman who is born no children to go sing with joy. Anyone who knows anything about the deep pains of infertility knows that there is nothing about it that, want, that one wants to sing with exuberant song. To say to a woman who cannot bear a child, sing, oh just go sing, you who have never had a chance to be in labor, that is grossly insensitive. So why do you start a passage that's supposed to be a peaceful scene this way? Well, remember Isaiah, he's writing to the people of Judah and they're in a precarious position. Oh, little Judah has watched as a much stronger sister nation to the north, Israel, was swallowed up, trampled by the Assyrians. 
Isaiah is writing them about a hundred years before they, Judah, will actually be taken over by the Babylonians. So when Isaiah is talking about a barren woman, he's talking about the nation of Judah. They were supposed to be a nation dedicated unto God. They were supposed to be fruitful in spreading the worship of God to the other nations. But they have done nothing like this. God calls them a barren woman, but commands them to sing for joy. Why? Second sentence, verse 1. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. God tells Judah to sing even though they are currently barren because he's about to change the barrenness. She will not only have children, she's going to have a lot of children. So much so she might want to begin saving for a home renovation project. Look at the next couple of verses. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and the left. Your offspring, catch this, your offspring, that is your children, will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. When you tell somebody to build a nursery with nations in mind, that's some type of expansion. But, but how? How is it supposed to be the case? We just said Judah's not following the ways of God. We also know they're not going to follow the ways of God because a hundred years later, they got taken over by the Babylonians. Doesn't God know who in the world He's dealing with here? This is Judah. Verse 4. He knows exactly. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, you will not be disgraced. Listen, for you will forget the shame of your youth. In the reproach of your widowhood, you will remember no more. God acknowledges that these are a people who have a right to carry shame. They are a nation that deserves disgrace. So how can He tell them that they will be able to forget their shame and let go of their barrenness? How in the world is Judah going to make that happen? How will they do it? This is critical. They will not make it happen. That's how. Verse 5. Everything changes. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of of the whole earth he is called. I gotta imagine, if you are struggling with infertility, it would not be a bad thing at all to be married to somebody who is an infertility specialist. Surely then he could use his training, maybe some tools, some medicines to help things out. Known some infertility doctors, they all have like triplets and twins running around. Somebody's taking some medicine home, right? 
God has so much better news for His people. They're not married to an infertility doctor who can experience and increase their chances of pregnancy. The people of God are married to their Maker, to their Creator. He is the Lord of hosts, the Lord full of strength. He's the Holy One of Israel. He doesn't experiment to create chances of pregnancy. He brings life out of nothing. Verse 5 is the explanation of how you go from barrenness to densely populated. How? It has nothing to do with the people of God. They are as helpless as ever. It is because God brought life out of nothing. The result of the work of the servant, that's Jesus Christ on the cross, is He gives life where there is no life. The story of Christianity is that God creates life out of deadness. Jesus called this process being born again. God our Maker, who is committed has committed Himself to us in covenantal relationship, supernaturally brings something out of nothing. Hear me. Christianity is not about cleaning up your act or getting things rightly ordered. It's not about a political philosophy and it is not about religious observances. Christianity is about those who are dead, those who are barren, being brought to life by the only one who can do it, God. Let me ask this. Is that news to us? Do we realize that on our own, we're not just a little bit marred. We're lifeless in our sin. Do you realize you stand in the full reality of your fears that any time you may die, that you may be confronted with a God who is angry with your sin. And that you are one who has done wrong. And you are one who, left to on your own, you will do wrong again. That's who you are. William Cooper, he lived in the 18th century in England. His father was a clergy, clergyman. He's a pastor. But he never told William the Gospel. While his dad had great plans for his son, William was plagued his entire life with deep fits of depression and fears. After one of his suicide attempts, at the age of 32, William was shipped off to an asylum. And by God's amazing grace, at the asylum was a man who would explain the gospel to William. In the process of God softening his heart, and it took some time, he was in the garden, and he writes this in his journal. This isn't uh, uh, probably early 18th century. Having found a Bible on the bench in the garden, I opened up to the 11th chapter of John's Gospel, where Jesus, or sorry, where Lazarus is raised from the dead. And I saw so much benevolence, mercy, goodness, and sympathy with miserable men in our Savior's conduct that I almost shed tears upon the relation, little thinking that it was an exact 
type of the mercy which Jesus was on the point of extending towards myself. I sighed and said, Oh, that I had not rejected so good a Redeemer that I had not forfeited all of His favors. This was my heart beginning to be softened, though not yet fully enlightened. William Cooper rightly saw that in John 11, the story of Jesus raising Lazarus was exactly what Jesus needed to do for him. Lazarus is not the exception for the Christian experience. Lazarus is the rule. Every one of us must hear the Savior call us out of our deadness, command us to come out of our sin, and land upon Him as our only hope. Verse 6 is exactly that. It's calling. Think of Jesus calling. Lazarus, come forth. Listen to verse 6. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. God calls to His wife Judah, who has been abandoned, because of her sin. And in this, we see that God's not overlooking the sin. Not a bit. He's taking it seriously. Keep going with me there in verse 7. For a brief moment, I deserted you. you got a place for that. That's God talking. For a brief moment, I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you. Verse 10, For the mountains may depart, the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. God explains that Israel's sin is real. As such, God will distance Himself for a moment. He's going to abandon her. He does not shrug off the sin of His people. He takes it real seriously. He describes His anger. It's not just a tad bit anger, uh, angry, but overflowing anger. But like in the days of Noah, God's going to restrain His anger. He'll not be angry with His people forever. But how? How does God go from overflowing anger to no anger? Look at verse 8. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord. Now your Bible probably has Lord all capitalized there. That's because that is Yahweh. So says God, your Redeemer. So here we see God move from anger to compassion. The answer as to how is identified with how God identifies Himself. He, God, is Yahweh the Lord. He is the Redeemer. God redeems us from the anger of God by bruising God His Son. He said again, God redeems us 
from the anger of God by bruising God, that is, His Son. Paul puts it like this, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, well, how will He not also with Him graciously give us everything? These verses explain the amazing exchange of the Christian Gospel. In a few verses, we go from overflowing anger to promised, not potential, promised perfect love. For the mountains may depart, the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love will not depart from you. The term steadfast love is the best English translation we could ever offer to an incredible Hebrew word, kesed. Kesed is is. It's an inexpressible, unending, unmitigated, uh, perfect love. We just call it steadfast love. When God says that the hills and the mountains may be removed, He's not using hyperbole. That's going to happen. There's coming a day when the hills and the mountains are gone. He says this earth will be destroyed. That's coming. The earth will give way. But the steadfast love of God will never, ever fail His own. God's love has satisfied our greatest need when His Son conquered our sin. God's people can trust Him for a covenant of peace. As William Cooper continued to learn the Gospel in the asylum, His mentor pointed him to Romans chapter 3, verse 25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, that is, satisfaction, through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins. Thinking on that, William wrote this, immediately, I received the strength to believe that. In the full beams, I love the way he puts this, of the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, in all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment, I believed and I received the gospel. Unless the almighty arm had been under me, I think I should have died with gratitude and joy. My eyes filled with tears. My voice choked with transport. I could only look to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and with wonder. The same love for this same Savior is still filling the universe today with joy. There is an answer to our shame and our guilt. There is a place to take it. William's life was not simple or happily ever after once he came to Christ. This poor man struggled with doubts of depression until he died in his late 70s. But he was forever transformed by his belief that Jesus offered an answer to his shame and guilt. Whether we realize it or not, we join with our brother William Cooper this morning in confessing that Jesus has washed away all our sins. After he left the asylum, he went to live with um, a a pastor and his family. But in short order, the pastor died. 
and a neighborhood pastor took over. Just so happened to be a guy by the name of John Newton. You might recognize the name of John Newton. He's the former slave trader who became pastor and wrote a song we're probably familiar with called Amazing Grace. Newton began to mentor Cooper and discovered that this man, Cooper, had an incredible gift for poetry. He said, you know, I'm going to start a hymns project and I, I, I thought you might want to be involved in that. William Cooper wrote down these words, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath the flood. They lose all their guilty stains. My favorite line, The dying thief Rejoice to see that fountain in his day. And there have I, though vile is he, I've washed all my sins away. Where do you take your shame and your guilt? Are you looking to overcome it with right deeds and exemplary behavior? Our shame and our guilt will never be covered up by any acts or any habit of acts or any routine of acts. Our shame and our guilt was exposed on the cross of Christ in a sickening fashion. Fully exposed in all of its ugliness. But praise God, when He died, it died. When He was buried, our shame and our guilt was buried. It went in the grave. It descended to the depths of hell and our shame and our guilt never came out. It never will. It is finished. But if we're honest, as we picture ourselves standing outside that tomb, yes, now shameless over our past, we are nervous about the future. Why? Because we know ourselves. We know our propensity to sin. We know our vile thoughts and our selfish attitudes. Perhaps our past shame is dealt with, but how in the world am I going to keep it together in the future? Verses 11 through 17 are made to answer that question. O oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundation with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of a gate, your gates of carbuncles, and all, and all your wall of precious stones. He's going to make a beautiful city out of us. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, that's Yahweh, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression. You shall not fear from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not for me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I created the smith who blows the fire coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravagers to destroy. No weapon shall be fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that arises in judgment. 
This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. So here God says He is going to build His people into a beautiful city, and He says He's going to take care of their brokenness and their sin. How? Verse 14. In righteousness you shall be established. Look at In righteousness. God buried our shame with the death of His Son. Past, present, and future. And He raised us up with Him with new life, new birth. How did He raise us? He raised us, it says there, this is key, with righteousness. While our shame never came out of the tomb, the righteousness of Jesus did. And God has established that as, the, as, as our righteousness. The servant promised is the foundation of the city. The passage, we don't have time to look at it all. It's incredibly encouraging. We will be taught by God. He will protect us. He will take care of us. There's nothing that can stand against us. I think it's best to close by returning to the opening sentence. Sing. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth in singing and cry aloud. You have never been in labor. As those who were lifeless, what should we do? I just want to stop right there. If you hear those who are lifeless and you're thinking to yourself, I guess there's some lifeless people in here. Some people have been lifeless before. You know, there's probably some riffraffs. If you're thinking that, you are not a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Let me say it. If you have not come to a point where you can identify with the deadness of Lazarus, you do not know the saving power of Jesus Christ. We, as believers, barren. No hope for us to bring fruit unto the kingdom of God. What should we do if He's called us to sing? What should we do if He's called us to proclaim? We should work to enlarge our tent, to spread the news. Bethel Gospel Assembly, it's a predominantly African-American congregation, is located in the heart of Harlem, New York. Last year they celebrated a hundred years as a church. This ministry has helped take the gospel to thousands and thousands. The interesting part is the person who helped, who started the church she never meant to start a church. In 1916, Lillian Crager was a 32-year-old single woman, and she found out that her all-white church would not allow two young black women who she had recently led to Christ to join her church because of the color of their skin. She was burdened that they would not grow in the faith so she started a Bible study in their home, in their neighborhood. Well, it began to grow. Lillian had no idea it would cause such a stir. She had no idea what it would cost her. She was engaged to be married. But her family and her fiancé gave her a clear ultimatum. You stop this outreach to those black people or I will call off the marriage. She struggled a lot 
many tears, and much time in prayer. She was 32, still single, and not sure of her future. And God brought her to Isaiah 54, verse 1. Sing, O barren one, for more are the children of the desolate than that of the married wife. Crager considered this a clear word from God, and she did not stop the Bible studies. Her fiancé indeed called off the wedding. She would spend the next 30 years, it would be 30 years later, before she was married, and she died within 10 years of that marriage. But she poured herself for those 30 years into this ministry. It grew so quick they had to start a church within a year. And she began teaching person after person, especially the immigrants from the, uh, the Caribbean islands, about Jesus. And they took it back to the Carib Caribbeans. And that, that, that grew a lot of the faith out of the Caribbeans that we know today. She died down in Florida. Probably never had any idea of the impact of her ministry. But boy, don't you think there is coming a sweet day when this barren woman, never had a child of her own, is going to really love the words, Sing, O barren one. For more will be the child of the desolate than that who is married. Folks, we have good news to proclaim. Let us trust God to bring life where there is no life. And let's go. Let's do what we have to do. And let's share the name of Jesus. He is ready to bear all the shame and all the guilt. All we have to do is share. I think it's fitting that we close with this Come Ye Sinners. I... This, this was written about uh, what, 17 years before the Declaration of Independence. Listen to those. We're not going to read all the words. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. Hear this. If you tarry until you're better, you will never come at all. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. Don't dream about getting it right. All the fitness that He requires is to feel your need of Him. We pray for us.